Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, by law. 18 plus. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Alex Patterson. The Extraordinary Adventures of Arsène Lupin by Maurice Leblanc. Chapter 7. Madame Imbert's Safe. At three o'clock in the morning, there were still half a dozen carriages in front of one of those small houses which form only the side of the Boulevard Berthier. The door of that house opened, and a number of guests, male and female, emerged. The majority of them entered their carriages, and were quickly driven away, leaving behind only two men, who walked down Corsiers, where they parted, as one of them lived in that street. The other decided to return on foot, as far as the Porte de Mayoff. It was a beautiful winter's night, clear and cold, a night on which a brisk walk is agreeable and refreshing. But, at the end of a few minutes, he had the disagreeable impression that he was being followed. Turning around, he saw a man sulking amongst the trees. He was not a coward, yet he felt it advisable to increase his speed. Then his pursuer commenced to run, and he deemed it prudent to draw his revolver and face him. But he had no time. The man rushed at him and attacked him violently. Immediately they were engaged in a desperate struggle, wherein he felt that his unknown assailant had the advantage. He called for help, struggled, and was thrown down on a pile of gravel, seized by the throat, and gagged with a handkerchief that his assailant forced into his mouth. His eyes closed, and the man who was smothering him with his weight arose to defend himself against an unexpected attack, a blow from a cane and a kick from a boot. The man uttered two cries of pain and fled, limping and cursing. Without deigning to pursue the fugitive, the new arrival stooped over the prostrate man and inquired, Are you hurt, monsieur? He was not injured, but he was dazed and unable to stand. His rescuer procured a carriage, placed him in it, and accompanied him to his house on the avenue de la Grande Armée. On his arrival there, quite recovered, he overwhelmed his saviour with thanks. I owe you my life, monsieur, and I shall not forget it. I do not wish to alarm my wife at this time of night, but to-morrow she will be pleased to thank you personally. Come and breakfast with us. My name is Ludovic Imbaré. May I ask yours? Certainly, monsieur. And he handed monsieur Imbaré a card bearing the name Arsène Lupin. At that time, Arsène Lupin not enjoy the celebrity which the Cahorn affair, his escape from the prison de la Santé, and other brilliant exploits afterwards gained for him. He had not even used the name of Arsène Lupin. The name was specially invented to designate the rescuer of Monsieur Imbert. That is to say, it was in that affair that Arsène Lupin was baptized, fully armed and ready for the fray. It is true, 
but lacking the resources and authority which command success. Arsène Lupin was then merely an apprentice in a profession wherein he soon became a master. With what a thrill of joy he recalled the invitation he received that night. At last he had reached his goal. At last he had undertaken a task worth of his strength and skill, the embedded millions. What a magnificent feast for an appetite like his! He prepared a special toilette for the occasion. A shabby frock coat, baggy trousers, a frayed silk hat, well-worn collar and cuffs, all quite correct in form, but bearing the unmistakable stamp of poverty. His cravat was a black ribbon pinned with a false diamond. Thus accoutred, he descended the stairs of the house in which he lived at Montmartre. At the third floor, without stopping, he rapped upon a closed door with the head of his cane. He walked to the exterior boulevards. A tram-car was passing. He boarded it, and someone who had been following him took a seat beside him. It was the lodger who occupied the room on the third floor. A moment later, this man said to Lupin, "'Well, governor? Well, it is all fixed. How? I am going there to breakfast.' "'You breakfast? There?' "'Certainly. Why not? I rescued Monsieur Ludovic Imberet from certain death at your hands. Monsieur Imberet is not devoid of gratitude. He invited me to breakfast.' There was a silence. Then the other said, "'But you are not going to throw up the scheme?' "'My dear boy,' said Lupin, "'when I arranged that little case of the salt at Battery, when I took the trouble at three o'clock in the morning, to wrap you with my cane and tap you with my boot, at the risk of injuring my only friend. It was not my intention to forego the advantages to be gained from a rescue so well arranged and executed. Oh, no, not at all. But the strange rumors we hear about their fortune. Never mind about that. For six months I have worked on this affair, investigated it, studied it, questioned the servants, the money-lenders, and men of straw. For six months I have shadowed the husband and wife. Consequently, I know what I am talking about, whether the fortune came to them from old Brawford, as they pretend, or from some other source. I do not care. I know that it is a reality, that it exists, and some day it will be mine. Bigre! One hundred millions! Let us say ten, or even five. That is enough. They have a safe full of bonds, and there will be the devil to pay if I can't get my hands on them. The tram-car stopped at the Palace de l'Etolier. The man whispered to Lupin, what am I to do now? Nothing at present. You will hear from me. There is no hurry. Five minutes later, Arsène Lupin was ascending the magnificent flight of stairs in the Imberet mansion, and Monsieur Imberet introduced him to his wife. Madame Gervasset Imberet was a short, plump woman, and very talkative. She gave Lupin a cordial welcome. I desired that we should be alone to entertain our saviour, she said. From the outset they treated our saviour as an old and valued friend. By the time dessert was served, their friendship was well cemented, and private confidences were being exchanged. Arsène related the story of his life, the life of his father as a magistrate, the sorrows of his childhood, and his present difficulties. Gervasier, in turn, spoke of her youth, her marriage, the kindness of the aged Brawford, the hundred millions that she had inherited, the obstacles that prevented her from obtaining the enjoyment of her inheritance, the monies she had been obliged to borrow at an exorbitant rate of interest, here endless contentions with Brawford's nephews, and the litigation, the injunctions, in fact, everything. Just think of it, Monsieur Lupin, the bonds are there, in my husband's office, and if we detach a single coupon, we lose everything. They are there, in our safe, and we dare not touch them. Monsieur Lupin shivered at the bare idea of his proximity to so much wealth. 
yet he felt quite certain that Monsieur Lupin would never suffer from the same difficulty as his fair hostess, who declared she dare not touch the money. Ah, they are there, he repeated, to himself, they are there. A friendship formed under such circumstances soon led to closer relations. When discreetly questioned, Arsène Lupin confessed his poverty and distress. Immediately, the unfortunate young man was appointed private secretary to the Imberes, husband and wife, at a salary of one hundred francs a month. He was to come to the house every day and receive orders for his work, and a room on the second floor was set apart as his office. This room was directly over Monsieur Imberet's office. Arsène soon realized that his position as secretary was essentially a sinecure. During the first two months, he had only four important letters to recopy, and was called only once to Monsieur Imberet's office. Consequently, he had only one opportunity to contemplate officially the Imberet safe. Moreover, he noticed that the secretary was not invited to the social functions of the employer. But he did not complain, as he preferred to remain modestly in the shade and maintain his peace and freedom. However, he was not wasting any time. From the beginning, he made clandestine visits to Monsieur Imberet's office, and paid his respects to the safe, which was hermetically closed. It was an immense block of iron and steel, cold and stern in appearance, which could not be forced open by the ordinary tools of the burglar's trade, but Arsène Lupin was not discouraged. Where force fails, cunning prevails, he said to himself. The essential thing is to be on the spot when the opportunity occurs. In the meantime, I must watch and wait. He made immediately some preliminary preparations. After careful soundings made upon the floor of his room, he introduced a lead pipe which penetrated the ceiling of Monsieur Imberet's office at a point between the two secrets of the cornice. By means of this pipe, he hoped to see and hear what transpired in the room below. Henceforth, he passed his days stretched at full length upon the floor. He frequently saw the Imberes holding a consultation in front of the safe, investigating books and papers. When they turned the combination lock, he tried to learn the figures and the number of turns they made to the right and left. He watched their movements. He sought to catch their words. There was also a key necessary to complete the opening of the safe. What did they do with it? Did they hide it? One day he saw them leave the room without locking the safe. He descended the stairs quickly and boldly entered the room. But they had returned. Oh, excuse me, said. I made a mistake in the door. Come in, Monsieur Lupin, come in, cried Madame Imberet. Are you not at home here? We want your advice. Which bonds should we sell, the foreign securities or the government annuities? But the injunction, said Lupin with surprise. Oh, it doesn't cover all the bonds. She opened the door of the safe and withdrew a package of bonds. But her husband protested. No, no, Gerasse, it would be foolish to sell the foreign bonds. They are going up, whilst the annuities are as high as they ever will be. What do you think, my dear friend? The dear friend had no opinion, yet he advised the sacrifice of the annuities. Then she withdrew another package, and, from it, she took a paper at random. It proved to be a three percent annuity worth two thousand francs. Ludovic placed the package of bonds in his pocket. That afternoon, accompanied by his secretary, he sold the annuities to a stockbroker, and realized forty-six thousand francs. Whatever Madame Imberet might have said about it, Arsène Lupin did not feel at home in the Imberet house. On the contrary, his position there was a peculiar one. He learned that the servants did not even know his name. They called him Monsieur. Ludovic always spoke of him in the same way. Will you tell Monsieur? Has Monsieur arrived? Why that mysterious appellation? Moreover, after their first outburst of enthusiasm, the Imberes seldom spoke to him, and, although treating him with the consideration due to a benefactor, 
they gave him little or no attention. They appeared to regard him as an eccentric character, who did not like to be disturbed, and they respected his isolation, as if it were a stringent rule on his part. On one occasion, while passing through the vestibule, he heard Madame Imbere say to the two gentlemen, "'He is such a barbarian!' "'Very well,' he said to himself, "'I am a barbarian.' And, without seeking to solve the question of their strange conduct, he proceeded with the execution of his own plans. He had decided that he could not depend on chance, nor on the negligence of Madame Imbere, who carried the key of the safe, and, who unlocking the safe, invariably scattered the letters, forming the combination of the lock. Consequently, he must act for himself. Finally, an incident precipitated matters. It was the vehement campaign instituted against the Imberes by certain newspapers that accused the Imberes of swindling. Arsene Lupin was present at certain family conferences when this new vicissitude was discussed. He decided that if he waited much longer, he would lose everything. During the next five days, instead of leaving the house about six o'clock, according to his usual habit, he locked himself in the room. It was supposed that he had gone out, but he was lying on the floor surveying the office of Monsieur Imbere. During those five evenings, the favorable opportunity that he awaited did not take place. He left the house about midnight, by a side door to which he held the key. But on the sixth day, he learned that the Imberes, actuated by the malevolent insinuations of their enemies, proposed to make an inventory of the contents of the safe. They will do it tonight, thought Lupin. And truly, after dinner, Imbere and his wife retired to the office, and commenced to examine the books of account and the securities contained in the safe. Thus, one hour after another passed, he heard the servants go upstairs to their rooms. No one now remained on the first floor. Midnight. The Imberes were still at work. I must get to work, murmured Dupin. He opened his window. It opened on a court. Outside, everything was dark and quiet. He took from his desk a knotted rope, fastened it to the balcony in front of his window, and quietly descended as far as the window below, which was that of the Imberes' office. He stood upon the balcony for a moment, motionless, with attentive ear and watchful eye but the heavy curtains effectually concealed the interior of the room. He cautiously pushed on the double window. If no one had examined it, it ought to yield to the slightest pressure, for, during the afternoon, he had so fixed the bolt that it would not enter the staple. The window yielded to his touch. Then, with infinite care, he pushed it open sufficiently to admit his head. He parted the curtains a few inches, looking in, and saw Monsieur Imbere and his wife, sitting in front of the safe, deeply absorbed in their work and speaking softly to each other at rare intervals. He calculated the distance between him and them, considered the exact movements he would require to make in order to overcome them, one after the other, before they could call for help, and he was about to rush upon them when Madame Imbere said, "'Ah, the room is getting quite cold. I'm going to bed. And you, my dear? I shall stay and finish.' "'Finish? Why? That will take you all night.' "'Not at all. An hour at the most.' She retired. Twenty minutes, thirty minutes passed. Arsene pushed the window a little further open. The curtains shook. He pushed once more. Monsieur Imbere turned, and, seeing the curtains blown by the wind, he rose to close the window. There was not a cry, not the trace of struggle. With a few precise movements, and without causing him the least injury, Arsene stunned him, wrapped the curtain about his head, bound him hand and foot, and did it all in such a manner that Monsieur Imbere had no opportunity to recognize his assailant. Quickly he approached the safe, seized two packages that he placed under his arm, left the office, and opened the servant's gate. A carriage was stationed in the street. "'Take that first, and follow me,' he said to the coachman. He returned to the office, and, in two trips, they emptied the safe. 
then Arsene went to his own room, removed the rope, and all other traces of his clandestine work. A few hours later, Arsene Lupin and his assistant examined the stolen goods. Lupin was not disappointed, as he had foreseen that the wealth of the Imberes had been greatly exaggerated. It did not consist of hundreds of millions, nor even tens of millions, yet it amounted to a very respectable sum, and Lupin expressed his satisfaction. Of course, he said, there will be a considerable loss when we come to sell the bonds, as we will have to dispose of them surreptitiously at reduced prices. In the meantime, they will rest quietly in my desk, awaiting a propitious moment. Arsene saw no reason why he should not go to the Imbere house the next day, but a pursual of the morning papers revealed this startling fact. Ludovic and Garavasse Imbere had disappeared. When the officers of the law seized the safe and opened it, they found there was what Arsene Lupin had left. Nothing. Such are the facts, and I learned the sequel to them, one day, when Arsene Lupin was in a confidential mood. He was pacing to and fro in my room, with a nervous step and a feverish eye that were unusual to him. After all, I said to him, it was your most successful venture. Without making a direct reply, he said, there are some impenetrable secrets connected with that affair, some obscure points that escape my comprehension. For instance, what caused their flight? Why did they not take advantage of the help I unconsciously gave them? It would have been so simple to say, the hundred millions were in the safe. They are no longer there because they have been stolen. They lost their nerve. Yes, that is it. They lost their nerve. On the other hand, it is true. What is true? Oh, nothing. What was the meaning of Lupin's reticence? It was quite obvious that he had not told me everything. There was something he was loath to tell. His conduct puzzled me. It must indeed be a very serious matter to cause such a man as Arsene Lupin even a momentary hesitation. I threw out a few questions at random. Have you seen them since? No. Have you never experienced the slightest degree of pity for those unfortunate people? I, he exclaimed with a start. His sudden excitement astonished me. Had I touched him on a sore spot? I continued. Of course, if you had not left them alone, they might have been able to face the danger, or, at least, made their escape with full pockets. What do you mean? he said indignantly. I suppose you have an idea that my soul should be filled with remorse? Call it remorse or regrets, anything you like. They are not worth it. Have you no regrets or remorse for having stolen their fortune? What fortune? The package of bonds you took from their safe. Oh, I stole their bonds, did I? I deprived them of a portion of their wealth. Is that my crime? Ah, my dear boy, you do not know the truth. You never imagined that those bonds were not worth the paper they were written on. Those bonds were false. They were counterfeit. Every one of them. Do you understand? They were counterfeit. I looked at him, astounded. Counterfeit? the four or five millions yes counterfeit he exclaimed in a fit of rage only so many scraps of paper i couldn't raise a sou on the whole of them and you ask me if i have any remorse they are the ones who should have remorse and pity they played me for a simpleton and i fell into their trap i was their latest victim their most stupid gull he was affected by genuine anger the result of malice and wounded pride he continued from start to finish i got the worst of it do you know the part I played in that affair, or rather, the part they made me play, that of André Brawford? Yes, my boy, that is the truth, and I never suspected it. It was not until afterwards, on reading the newspapers, that the light finally dawned in my stupid brain, whilst I was posing as his saviour, as the gentleman who had risked his life to rescue Monsieur Imbere from the clutches of an assassin. They were passing me off as Brawford. Wasn't that splendid? 
the eccentric individual who had a room on the second floor, that barbarian that was exhibited only at a distance, was Brawford, and Brawford was I. Thanks to me, and to the confidence that I inspired under the name of Brawford, they were enabled to borrow money from the bankers and other moneylenders. Ha! What an experience for a novice, and I swear to you that I shall profit by the lesson. He stopped, seized my arm, and said to me in a tone of exasperation, My dear fellow, at this very moment, Gervasier Imbere owes me fifteen hundred francs. I could not refrain from laughter. His rage was so grotesque. He was making a mountain out of a molehill. In a moment, he laughed himself and said, Yes, my boy, fifteen hundred francs. You must know that I had not received one sou of my promised salary, and, more than that, she had borrowed from me the sum of fifteen hundred francs, all my youthful savings, and do you know why? To devote the money to charity. I am giving you a straight story. She wanted it for some poor people she was assisting, unknown to her husband, and my hard-earned money was wormed out of me by that silly pretense. Isn't it amusing, Hein? Arsene Lupin done out of fifteen hundred francs by the fair lady from whom he stole four millions in counterfeit bonds. And what a vast amount of time and patience and cunning I expended to achieve that result. It was the first time in my life that I was played her a fool, and I frankly confess that I was fooled that time to the Queen's taste. End of chapter 7